What does true Christianity look like? I think that James, in this closing section of chapter 1, starts answering that question, introduces a bunch of topics that he's going to bring up throughout the rest of the book, and also leads into chapter 2. We start out there in verse 1, and it says, This you know, my beloved brethren. And there seems to be a paragraph marker there, so that raises the question, does the, is the thing that we know what he said in verse 18, or is the thing that he knows in the second half of verse 19? And I think uh, what he is doing is linking these two sections together. What has he said in verse 18? In the exercise of his will, God's will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. When he says, you know this, beloved brethren, both what he said before and what he's about to say are not necessarily new truths that they're unfamiliar with. Peter does something similar in his epistle. He says, you already know these things, but I'm going to bring them to your mind again. Sometimes when we look at God's word, we want it to be something new and exciting and different. But sometimes what we need is to go back to the basics and be reminded of them and ask ourselves the question, how am I not living up to the essential things that it means to be a Christian? When it says that we are the first fruits among his creatures, these are, we are, as God's creatures, evidence of his work in us, those who have been transformed by salvation, so what does that look like? It looks like a change in our, suppose we could call it our disposition. Before we know Christ, one of the things that characterizes us is wrath. Both because, as it says in Ephesians 2, we are under God's wrath because we deserve it for our sin, and because our words and our actions demonstrate wrath in various ways. Think about the link that Jesus develops in Matthew between a hateful thought toward another person and the sin of murder. What separates those two things is not so great a distance as we would think. Think back to the story of Cain and Abel that we just looked at recently. Cain hated his brother Abel because Abel was approved by God and Cain was not, rather than admitting his sin and seeking forgiveness and turning away from that sin and turning to God for forgiveness and for help to obey, Cain gives in to that temptation toward anger, follows it to its natural conclusion, which was, he said, I want to get rid of my brother. And so when we, in a similar way, find ourselves angry with another person, remember Cain. Do I wish evil and harm toward this person so much that I am willing to be like Cain and give in to the temptation of anger? God said, Cain, you've got a choice. Sin wants to master you. Don't give in to it. Say no to it. Turn away from it. And the same choice lies before us. But the disposition that is changed in us 
is what it says in verse 19. Everyone must be quick to hear. Oftentimes, our anger or our wrath flows out of misunderstandings, willful ignoring of what other people have said, or, as it says in the next phrase, things that we just blurt out without thinking. Why does he link all these things together? They're not just random phrases he threw together. It's because these things are often connected. When we don't listen, when we say the first thing that comes to our mind, we are often quick to anger. So he says, let's switch up the, the emphasis, the order, the readiness to these things. Be very ready to hear. Listen to what the people around you are saying. Listen to what God has said. Be slow to give your own opinion. Think. Be careful. It says in the book of Proverbs that in a multitude of, of words there hardly fails to be sin. It says that a soft word can turn away anger. So both the amount of things that we say and the way in which we say them can be the difference between a situation that dishonors God and leads to sin in many people's part or a situation that honors God. Be slow to speak, having been quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Why should we be slow to anger? There are kinds of anger that, there is a kind of anger that is appropriate. We think about Jesus in the temple. Jesus was angry at those who were profaning the temple by lying and cheating people who were coming to worship God from all around the world. They'd say, okay, the exchange rate is such and such, and they would add a little bit for themselves on the top. When what they were doing was supposed to be a service so people could, who had traveled hundreds of miles, buy the animals that they needed for sacrifice, because it's not like you could carry a sheep easily on a several hundred mile journey. You would bring money with you, and you got to the temple, you would buy an animal that they had available there. They saw that as an opportunity to profit, to take advantage of people, and that was profaning the temple. When we see sinful activity of that kind, it ought to stir us to anger. But the reason James says, be slow to anger, is because oftentimes... The anger that first rises up in us is not God has been offended, the name of Christ has been put down, someone has been taken advantage of in an ungodly way. Oftentimes, the anger that first arises in us is the thing that I want has been interrupted. And an anger that flows out of that sort of thought does not honor God. It is a selfish anger. It is a sinful anger. So the next time that you're angry, pause and ask yourself this question. Why am I angry? Ask yourself the question God asked Jonah when the worm ate the vine that was giving him shade in the hot desert sun while Jonah was waiting to see God burn Nineveh to the ground. Do you have a right to be angry, Jonah? 
we don't necessarily have a right to be angry when the thing that is making us angry is part of God's sovereign purpose, particularly when it's something that's due to our own lack of planning ahead, when it's something that might not even be a good thing that we're wanting, and it gets interrupted. In those circumstances, we don't have the right to be angry. What if it's something that we're, our, we're serving God, and then something unexpected comes into our lives and, and interrupts our lives in a drastic way? Do we have a right to be angry then? I think we have a right to talk to God about it. I think we have a right to seek to understand it. I think we have to be careful in the way that we respond, even to those sorts of circumstances, that our response is one that honors God. What is our motivation? What is the goal that we're trying to achieve? James says the anger that is unacceptable is a kind that doesn't promote the righteousness of God. So ask yourself that question. Does this anger, is it directed toward God's righteousness being upheld, promoted, moved forward? Or is it just me blowing off steam because it makes me feel better, briefly, until I have to deal with the fallout from what I have done? Now there's two kinds of anger. There's the anger that's like the volcano erupting. And there's the anger that's like a tea kettle sitting on the stove. It gets hotter and hotter and hotter, but it doesn't go off right away. And we tend to be prone to one kind of anger or the other. Both of them can be displeasing to God because they are directed with anger toward other people, with... with um, a desire of harm toward other people because they are not seeking to achieve God's righteousness, because they are not following after James's admonition, listen, wait before you speak, wait before you get stirred up, make sure that you have God's goals, not your own goals in mind. And so the first thing that he sort of addresses here is what is our disposition toward people? Is it one that is characterized by anger, by hatred, by violence, by all of these sorts of things? That was the old way of living. If you're one of God's people now, that shouldn't be what your life looks like. That's what God sent the flood to judge. That's what Jesus condemns. That's what we are urged not to do, not to live in this way that is dismissive of what other people are saying, ready to speak our own mind, ready to blow up at a moment's notice, or have a seething bitterness that ruins relationships. He moves on to the next verse, and he says, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. This is similar to what Paul describes in Ephesians 4 and in Ephesians 5 and in Colossians 3. There are old sinful practices that displease God. Set those aside. 
There are new things which God is pleased by. Put those on. And what is the mechanism by which that takes place? It's not just, I have the power in myself and I look within. I believe in myself and I can do all that I can do. And all of those sorts of sayings that we have in our culture. Why is it not from within us? Our strength is not enough. Our goodness is not our own. It's God's work in us. Specifically, it says, the word implanted. In humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. When God saves us, He does so through the gospel message, who Jesus is, our need to repent of our sin, what God is going to do in our lives going forward, all those things together. We hear, we respond to that. But we need to continue to receive that word planted in us like you're digging a trench in the ground and putting seeds in it and it turns into a a bigger shrub or plant or fruit tree and then it shows what sort of a thing it is. Sometimes we've had the idea, not necessarily here, but in American Christianity as a whole, we've had the idea that I pray a prayer, I check the box, I've got my ticket, I go do whatever I want after that. James is saying, the seed was planted, but it's got to grow. It's going to show what kind of a person you are. Do you really belong to the one that you have said you're going to follow now? And it's God's word that does the changing and the producing of the fruit as we put off all the remnants of wickedness and put on following God. And so if we are those who are genuinely believers, we slow down and listen. We are careful before we speak. We are careful before we're stirred up. And we understand this process of how God is transforming us from those who are wicked to those who are righteous. What does this look like? It looks like, in verses 22 through 25, that we do the word, not just hear the word. So now he's going to link it back to what he said at first. Be quick to hear. I said that could have reference to listing the people around us before jumping to conclusions, but specifically in context, the main point that he is making is this. Be quick to hear the word. Prove yourselves doers of the word that you have heard. Because verse 21, God is doing this process by which he plants the word in us and we cast off wickedness and we put on righteousness and we become transformed to the image of Christ. But James gives us two contrasting pictures. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. It's interesting. um, Paul says, I think it's in 2 Corinthians 3.18. Let me turn there real quick. 
He says, We with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. Sometimes when we read this passage in James, we think about like a glass mirror hanging on the wall. Now that's not a bad picture. But if we set this passage alongside the passage in 2 Corinthians, we get sort of this picture. I look into the mirror, which is God's Word, and I behold the glory of God in the Word both written and in the person of Christ. And then, I have a choice. Because I see that, and I set alongside it who I know myself to be, and they don't match up. And the person who sees that picture, Christ, God's glory, what He wants me to be, set alongside what I actually am presently, and then says everything's good, when the pictures don't match up, James condemns that sort of behavior because he says those people are hearers of the word and not doers, and they forget. And we, um, that's one of our excuses sometimes, right? Why didn't you do the thing that you were supposed to do? I forgot. Why do we forget? Often it's not because, we, it's because we were not convinced the thing was really all that important to begin with. But when we see God in His Word and the path that He has laid out before us of what He wants us to be, statements like it says in Ephesians 2.10, He created us in Christ Jesus for good works that we should walk in them. Or the way that James says it here, put aside all filthiness, all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls, be doers of the word. We have a choice. Are we going to say, you know, it's, it's a good thing, probably somebody else should be doing it, but I don't feel like I should do it right now. What sort of God do we serve? A God who gives us every good and perfect gift from above. A God who does not change. A God who is transforming us by the word of his truth so we be kind of first fruits among his creatures. And he says this is the process by which that takes place. And we say, eh, maybe later. Do you see why James is worked up about why we can't act that way? Sometimes we look at this and we say, it's like, well, you've got a smudge of dirt on your forehead and... You know, you, you see it, but you say, I'm in a hurry, I'm not going to worry about it, I'm going to keep going my own way. What would be the downside of that? You might be a little bit embarrassed. Your wife might be embarrassed for you. In the grand scheme of things, not that big of a deal, right? If I don't brush my hair today, what difference does it make? Well, it's not a life and death issue. It's an impossibility for some. But, brush your teeth, we can throw out other examples. But note what he's contrasting it with. Wickedness 
and everything connected with it is what we're supposed to be putting off. We're supposed to be taking in the implanted word which is able to save our souls. So if we say, I want nothing to do with that process, it raises questions. Do I really know the God that I claim to serve? Or if I do know the God that I claim to serve, why am I so blinded and thinking this is so unimportant that I can see what God has said and I walk away from His Word unchanged? This ties in very well with what we've been looking at in Sunday school the last few weeks, right? We see God's Word. We hear God's Word. Whether we're reading it, whether we're listening to it in a sermon or on a CD or some other format, we encounter God's Word. And if we just stop there, we encounter God's Word and we go on to the next thing, we are potentially acting like this person here in verses 23 and 24, who hears the Word, not changed by it, goes and does the next thing. But look at the process James describes in verse 25. One who looks intently at the perfect law, the one of liberty, he looks intently at it. What does that sound like? Meditating on God's Word. You say, well, that was just Psalm 119 and people in the Old Testament and all that stuff. No, James is saying that process still happens today. God is using His Word to transform our lives, but when we hear it, when we encounter it, when we come across it, we have to pause and look intently at it. It's one thing to say, here's the picture of who God is and of who I'm supposed to be, and I know I don't match up to it in general ways, but what specifically am I doing that doesn't honor God? What specifically should I be doing that I'm not doing that God has called me to do? Not just, I was sinful today. How did I sin? I spoke hatefully to this person. I was greedy in the way that I wanted this thing. I was not worshipful of God and not thankful for all the ways that He has blessed me. And when we start putting our daily experiences in those sorts of biblical terms, here's the sin that I've committed, here's the forgiveness that God offers, Here's the righteousness I'm supposed to live up to. I think we're doing a little bit of what James says in verse 25, looking intently at the perfect law. For the Israelites, the law showed them that they couldn't keep it. Just like Adam failed, and Seth failed, and Noah failed, and Abraham failed, and David failed, and all the kings of Israel failed, and everyone up to Christ failed, the law showed the people of Israel, here's what God expects, and nobody can do it. But James says, the law, the law of liberty, a law which Paul will later describe as the spirit of freedom, I think what he's talking here is not about the Old Testament law primarily, although it's not disconnected from that. I think he's saying, what does God require of you as followers of Christ? 
as we look at Christ, as we look at the things that He expects of us, sometimes we think there is no law for those who are under Christ. But Romans 6 says this, It's not, I was under the law, and now I'm under no law. It was, I was under the law, condemned by it, but now since Christ has fulfilled it, I can keep the perfect law, the law of liberty, which is doing all the things that God expects of me because I have the power to do them in Christ through the help of the Spirit according to the plan of God the Father. I was a slave to sin, condemned by the law. Now I'm a slave to righteousness with the possibility of keeping what God expects of me. And so I search that law. I look and see what God has said. Who, what is God like? What has he called me to do? But it doesn't stop there. It's not just I hear it, because that's where the first person goes wrong. They hear it and they walk away. It's not just I look intently at it, I meditate on it, I think about it, because I can hear it and I can think about it, and then if I still walk away at that point, it hasn't done what it's supposed to do in my life, right? Look at the next phrase and abides by it. How do we know when we've understood the truth of God's Word that we have heard and that we have thought of? When it changes who we are. And when I say who we are, I'm not talking about are you a fan of this team? Are you, what, are you in this stage of life? I'm saying who we are in terms of am I someone who looks like Jesus? Am I someone who doesn't look like Jesus in the way that I think, in the things that I want, in what I do? So, do you abide by it? Where in this process that James lays out in verse 25 do you find yourself jumping ship and saying, I'm not going to keep following through with the process? Is it at the very first part? You're not even hearing God's word? Is it you're hearing God's word, but you don't think about what's been said? Is it you think about what's been said, but you don't say, I really want to do that, and it doesn't change your life? Why is that important? Because James says next, if you, are not, if you have not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. The end result of the process that starts with encountering God's word is for the one who knows God, God's blessing. And if we short-circuit the process or avoid some step in this progression, we're not going to get there. God's word does us no good if we never hear it. That's why it's important to gather with God's people. That's why it's important to look at the many copies of God's Word we have available to us. That's why it's important to listen to it as we have opportunity throughout the week. But if we just have knowledge, that's not going to transform our lives. There has to be a process by which we are soaking in the truth of God's Word and thinking carefully about it and turning it over and over it's like if you pick up a rock on the beach, covered in sand, maybe it has seaweed stuck to it, 
What do you really know about it when you just take that first glance and set it aside? Not a whole lot. You wash it off. You put a light on it. You turn it over and over and examine all of the cracks and crevices and formations on it. Do you know that better after you've done that than at the very beginning? Yes. There's a fellow who is a student of a well-known scientist. I forget where I read this, but this scientist, this professor, says, what I want you to do is I'm going to teach you to observe. She takes the student, puts a pan in front of him, puts a fish on it, walks out of the room. Comes back in an hour or two later. What have you found? I've learned everything there is to know about it. Said, no, you haven't. Look again. Apparently, this continued for several days. Sometimes, like the student, we're in such a rush to move on from the thing that we think we already fully understand. Why should I bother looking at it some more? We need to look intently at the law of liberty. And unlike the student who was just making observations for scientific purposes, they probably didn't really affect his daily life other than make him a more careful observer of the world around him. The things that we encounter in God's Word are supposed to have some sort of effect in us. So when we read something, like in this passage, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, what sort of things should we do? We should ask ourselves, am I quick to hear? Am I quick to hear God's word? Somebody says, hey, you're sinning, and God says this thing. What's your first response? Do you get all defensive? No, I'm not. You don't know what it is. What do I say? That's God's word. I need to listen to it. Am I quick to speak and say, make excuses and all those sorts of things? Am I quick to be angry? You don't have the right to tell me that. Or in the process of encountering God's word, does it start to sink in? Do we start to recognize truths that we didn't realize before or that we didn't see how we weren't living up to what God required of us? Do we abide by it? Not just do we know facts over there, things that we've maybe thought about for a while because someone made us sit down and think about them or because we were simply curious. Has that taken the next step and changed what we do. So the next time, when we get ready to sin, truth about God comes to our mind. God has created me to look like Jesus, and this doesn't look like Jesus, so I shouldn't do this thing. I've heard God's Word, I've thought about what that means, and now I'm actually doing it. What does James say will follow afterward? Blessing. What sort of blessing? In one sense, it's the joy of knowing that we're doing the very thing that God made us to do. We don't often have that joy because, unlike Adam and Eve, we don't know what it's like to live in a perfect world in which everything does what it's supposed to do, fulfilling God's plan exactly. We live in a world that's broken, where people pretend like God doesn't exist, where we act like we can do whatever we want, where we think that we will be most happy 
by having no consideration for anyone else around us. But James says, that's not the way it's supposed to be. God lays out in his word a picture of who he is and who he created us to be, and we are blessed when we hear and when we ponder and when we do because we're finally fulfilling what God made us to be and to do. Do you know that kind of joy? The kind of joy that says, I would really, really, really want to do this, but for the sake of this person in my family whom I love, this is what's more important. I really, really, really want to have this thing, but more important than anything that I can ever possess is being the right kind of person in God's sight. I really, really, really think that I would be happy if this was the case in my life. But to know Christ is more important than having a house, having clothes, having food. And Paul says, I can still be content. He was blessed. Why? Because he had encountered God's word, thought deeply about God's word. What sort of things did he encounter? Jesus is the point of it all. Okay? He encountered that truth. And then he thought about it. He thought about all the comparisons. Is Jesus more important than this thing, or that thing, or the other thing? Being accepted by my countrymen, having an easy life, having plenty of food to eat, having clothes to wear. Is Jesus more important than all those things? Yes. So how am I going to live? Paul said, I'm going to preach the gospel, even though it means my fellow countrymen try to kill me, even though it means I may starve, even though it means I may be thrown in jail, even though it means I will die because I'm doing what God has called me to do, but I can be content, I can be blessed because I'm doing what God made me to do. I'm pointing people to follow the Christ that God wants them to know. And that's worth it. And he comes to verse 26. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religious religion is worthless. Why would he make a statement like this? Because just like our disposition of anger versus obedience shows whether we are participating in this process of change that God is working out in our lives, the things that we say reveal our hearts. And if we say, I know God, and the things that come spilling out of our minds are uncontrolled and don't line up with that, James says, your words show that you don't really follow God in the way that you say that you do. He's going to develop that more in chapter 3. So, what do your words say about how well you know God and follow Him? I'm not just saying this to you. This rebukes me as well. What things do you say? What things do you not say? If, if Jesus is all the world to you, does His name cross your lips when you talk to the people around you? So what things do you say that you shouldn't? What things don't you say that you should? 
how does your tongue reveal your heart? And then in verse 27, he turns and looks at it from a little bit different angle. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. People have taken this verse and taken it in all sorts of strange directions. It basically said, as long as you help the poor and those who are oppressed, and as long as you don't all, do all the bad things around you, that is the essence of Christianity. Nothing about belief in Jesus, nothing about you know, all of the other things that the Bible says. James is summing it up, and this is all there is. That's really to misuse this verse and not to consider it in its context. What is James developing in this section? God has begotten you as his people by the word of truth. So what comes after? What shows that that's really going on in your heart and life? Your response to circumstances, your obedience or lack thereof to the process of change God has laid out, the words that reveal your heart, and now, not just our words, but our actions demonstrate something about whether we really know God or not. What I think James is doing is leading into the next chapter. In the next chapter, which we'll look at shortly, James talks about people who come into the assembly who are poor, among whom would have been widows and orphans. And James says, what sort of attitude do you have toward people in that condition? Is your attitude, they can't help me, so what good are they to me? Then you really don't know God the way that you say that you do. What's the link to worldliness then? The world looks at people around us as means to an end. If this person can help me get ahead in this world, then I will make that person my friend. If they can't, they're of no use to me. That's a worldly way of looking at things, which James is about to condemn in the first part of chapter 2. So what does true Christianity look like? It looks like change. Not change that we manufacture by mere strength of will, but change that God is working out in our hearts and lives. Instead of being like Cain, quick to anger, quick to speak, unwilling to listen to what God has said, we listen carefully to what God has said in His Word. We pause before we speak. We pause before we get stirred up or angry about things. This shows God's work in us. We put off wickedness. We continue to put on righteousness. It takes place by the continuous intake of God's Word. And that intake isn't a process that just is, okay, I took it all in, and that's it. It's a process taking God's Word in, thinking carefully and deeply on it, abiding in it, receiving God's blessing as we obey, which then can be seen in what we say, good or bad, and what we do. This is where I think the link between knowing God's Word and our actions becomes more clear in this sense. What has God revealed Himself to be throughout the Old Testament? A God who is concerned about those in need. 
This is a common theme in the condemnation of the nation of Israel. You ignored the needs of those who had no one to cry out on their behalf. And so if God was concerned about them in the nation of Israel, and we say, I have no concern for those who have needs, because they don't help me get ahead, and I have a worldly attitude toward how the church is supposed to work, James says, you haven't really gotten what it means to be transformed by the work of God and genuinely follow Christ, which will lead us into his condemnation of the sin of partiality. So to keep oneself unstained by the world is not just don't do sinful, lustful activities. It also has to do with don't adopt the world's mindset about things. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. John condemns that in his epistle. And so what ways does the world stain our thinking, our words, and our actions that are not just vice lists, where Paul lists off all the sinful things that we do, but that are completely wrong ways of organizing our perspective on life? What's important to us? How do we treat people? What pleases God? These things are... Um, We've absorbed a lot of this because of where we are in society, in history, in being part of a world system that opposes God. And James is saying, pause and think about it and ask yourself, how is the way that I think, how are my actions possibly contradictory and disconnected from what God would really call me to be and do? So look at your heart and life. Or rather, I should say, look at God's Word and then compare your heart and life to what you see there. If God is this way, He's worth following. If God calls us to be this thing, that's what we ought to be. If my life doesn't match up with that picture... What do I do? This is an ongoing process by which we are transformed into the image of Christ. And James gives us a number of points to evaluate ourselves. Am I angry? Do I have remnants of wickedness? Do I abandon the process of spiritual change because it's hard work? Do my words show that I don't know God as well as I think that I do? Do my actions show that I don't love people like I should, and instead, I have a worldly way of approaching life? The hope is that if we truly know God, He has the power to transform us. Philippians 1 says, The one who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. Another place in Philippians it says, Work out your own salvation in fear and trembling, because it is God who is at work in you. Isn't that what James just said in the first part of the chapter? God brought us forth by His will. God changes us by His will. <coughs> so continue to be changed. 
continue to see where you need to change and live out a genuine faith in the sight of God. Let's pray. Lord, these are simple truths. It's not things we haven't heard before probably many times. As we see your word, help us to see you in it. As we see your word, help us to see our own sinfulness. As we see your word, help us to reflect deeply on what it says. May that thinking carefully about the truth of your word affect us as we abide in it, obey it, live it out. May we experience your blessing as we do so. And if we are not, I should say, since we have not yet arrived, there are areas in the way that we listen, speak, and act in anger or not, whether we are actively involved in putting off wickedness through taking in your word, whether our words reveal things about our hearts, whether our actions reveal what's really important to us, Lord, help us to use these checkpoints to evaluate ourselves against the standard of your word, not so that we would despair, but rather so by your help we would resolve to be more like Christ, that we would seek that help, knowing that you have provided it for us, that your spirit stands ready to carry that out in us. Lord, we pray that this passage and others would affect our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.